Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. During this difficult time, the latest stay-at-home order requires us to make difficult decisions. We have decided that it's our ethical and social responsibility to our customers and families that we remain closed during the lockdown. Uh, this is a, a screen capture from a post on uh, Instagram of a local business here in Toronto. And what I want you to notice is that they made the closing of their business an ethical and moral issue, a social responsibility. Um, as the vaccinations continue to roll out, just in my own circles of conversation, I've noticed that people have made uh, getting vaccinated a moral issue as well. Uh, some people, on one hand, they celebrate. They even post on social media their little parties that they're able to get vaccinated. Uh, on the other hand, more on the negative side, I've, I've experienced and witnessed uh, people shaming others that they're not getting vaccinated. Now, I start off the sermon this way uh, not to make a statement about the morality of vaccination and during the pandemic, what's moral and what's not. But what I want you to see with me uh, is that our culture certainly has a sense of morality. Our culture certainly has a sense of uh, doing good. Now, this is curious, at least for me, because um, our culture, I, as I see it, it, it continues, especially in a pluralistic, uh, just multicultural place like Toronto. Toronto continues to become relativistic, and that's just a fancy way of saying that uh, increasingly everyone has their own individual truth, and we're supposed to respect that. And you might hear it a lot, speak your truth. And that's just another way to say that uh, our culture is very individualistic as well. And if you take individualism and speaking your own truth to its logical conclusion, then there's no standard of morality. Uh, everyone can just do what they deem is their good and as they define good. Now, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, uh, this notion of goodness and wanting to do good uh, and it's there, what I want you to convince you of is it's there in our culture. We're moral people. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised 
Because when we read the Bible, as we receive the Bible as God's inspired word, when we go to Genesis, the explanation is very simple. God has created us in his image. And God is a perfect righteousness. He is the moral standard. His character, who he is. And that's been placed on us, albeit it's broken now because of sin. And in fact, God's original arrangement with uh, humanity, the way he wanted to relate, uh, was through moral performance, uh, moral obedience. If Adam and Eve and, and their generations uh, continued to just obey the commands that God had provided, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and to enjoy everything that God has provided as a gift, and to be in right relationship with him, then everything would go well. Now, to put it another way then, here's sort of the main point of the introduction. Uh, and I'll put it in a form of a question, two questions. Uh, what's your motivation for doing good, for good works? What's your motivation for being a good person? And what is your means for good works? What, what, where do you find the power, the energy to continue on in being a good person? Because being a good person can get tiresome. It, it can get hard to be the good person. So where does your strength, your means for continuing in good works come from? That's why I've entitled the sermon today, Grace and Good Works Till the End. Because in today's passage, as Jesus is wanting to prepare his disciples for the end, uh, this is, I believe, two nights before Jesus' crucifixion. And certainly the end is very much on Jesus' heart. And now he transitions uh, to telling two parables. Today we'll focus on the first one, next week the second one. And I think he's providing a perspective, a way to life as we wait for Jesus. And I think it's this whole notion of God's grace working itself out through good works to the end. That's why I've, I offer you this prayer. I hope it'll stick with you in some shape and form. Lord, give me grace to perpetually overflow good works until you call me home. This is a sure sign, a sure, uh, just a, a characteristic of the genuine Christ follower to perpetually overflow good works until you call me home. So if you can imagine the, the second hand on a, a fabulously designed watch and just perpetually moving along. That, that's the notion, just perpetually overflowing good works. And so I, I want to ask for the rest of the, uh, the sermon, how do I perpetually overflow good works until Christ calls me home? And the basic answer is perpetually dwell on Christ, on Jesus on his personhood, on who he is, on what he's done, on his first love towards you. And from there, we're meant to respond and overflow uh, back to him. And so I want to draw out uh, characteristics of Christ that I see in today's passage, and I hope they will encourage you that it will be God's grace to you uh, to do something from the inside out and for you to continue to overflow good works uh, yeah, unto him as your motivation. So here's the first thing I want you to see with me. First, perpetually dwell on Christ's desire. Desire for what? Desire for whom? Well, as we pick up in Jesus' story, it says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. And so he's comparing. He's telling a parable to compare uh, what the kingdom of heaven is like. And it's like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. 
Uh, what you need to understand is, if, if you're not familiar with uh, the customs and culture of Jesus' times, this is basically describing a very typical wedding scene uh, for Jesus' culture and his people at the time. The ten virgins here, uh, basically think of them as the bridal party. Uh, think of them as the bridesmaids. And they had a specific role to play in this wedding ceremony. And they would go out uh, to uh, the, either uh, the, the gate of uh, the home, perhaps the outside of the courtyard, or perhaps even outside of the town where there was a gate. And they were waiting for the bridegroom and his entourage, his groomsmen perhaps, uh, to come and, and to welcome them. Now, they had lamps because they weren't sure when he would arrive. Most likely he was coming from his hometown and that journey could, there could be any, you know, just uh, unpredictable circumstances and so forth. So if they arrived at the day, during the daytime, of course they wouldn't need the lamps. Uh, but if he arrived at night, then they would need lamps. Why? Because as he proceeded in, they, they would not wait for the next morning. They would begin the wedding ceremony right there and then. And so the role, the responsibility of these bridesmaids were to, to light up the night and to put the, the, the handsomeness and the glory of the bridegroom on display. And of course, as he came to meet the bride, then also the bride's beauty is put on display. But it wasn't just for that welcoming. Their role, because during Jesus' time, wedding feasts typically were actually weeks. Uh, they were full of joy. Just imagine that, a party going on for two weeks that never dies. It's just full of joy the entire two weeks, even as it's drawn out and it just has that sort of maybe a, a vacation feel, a, a several weeks vacation feel. And so the role of these bridesmaids were to be able to light up the night each night. And so they were to come with enough oil prepared for the entire wedding feast, not just that moment of welcome. And so this is a preparation that definitely took forethought and uh, just uh, diligent preparation. It wasn't just like wiping down the table. It's like consistently paying the mortgage. It was a big responsibility that they had to think through in advance and uh, for the foolish virgins here to not be prepared, it was a gross misstep. Now, I want you to see here then, what I want you to see in addition to that is that we see Jesus' desire. Why? Because Jesus, as he tells the story, he, he, he's intentional, always intentional. And he chooses to tell the story to frame the kingdom of heaven in this love story, this romance, this marriage, this covenant, this fidelity. And so here we see the bridegroom who is Christ. It represents Christ. Tim Keller is a contemporary pastor, and he uh, has written a, a wonderful book on the meaning of marriage from a Christian standpoint. And of course, the meaning of marriage is to reflect Christ's love for his church. And so reflecting on Christ's uh, just marital love, his fidelity, his commitment, his desire for his church, uh, Tim Keller reflects like this. We must say to ourselves, preaching this gospel of, of Christ and his desire for us, his church, we must preach to ourselves something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony. And he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. 
He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. He loved us, not because we were lovely to Him, but to make us lovely. Christ's desire. And that's why Jesus frames the story of the end as a wedding feast. The bridegroom's desire and the anticipation of the bridegroom being united to His bride and this bridal party playing a very important role for that to happen. But there's also not only Christ's desire, but His demand. And I've been unpacking it already, and by demand I mean that there is this bridal party with a very important role to play. A very important responsibility. Think of it as if uh, you get married one day, or you were married, probably had bridesmaids and groomsmen. Think of the bridesmaids not showing up in their uh, bridal bridesmaid dress that you purchased, that you labored over the color and the design, and they don't show up with that dress. Or the, the groomsmen, your best man, not showing up with the rings. That was sort of the, the, the equivalent of the importance of the role of these virgins to be ready with these lamps and to have enough oil. And so Jesus, he categorizes people basically into two categories here in the story, foolish and wise. And this is consistent with Scripture, especially in the Psalms and the Proverbs. The psalm says that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And the Proverbs, of course, speak to wisdom and folly. The fool, and in the Proverbs unpack the, the fool that rejects God and his teaching his wisdom, that continues to make choices and actions that take him further on a trajectory of wanting to reject God and not turn to God. And of course, in Scripture, as we scan from Genesis to Revelation, especially through Paul, he speaks of wisdom unto salvation. That the greatest wisdom in this life is not contemporary TED Talks. It's not Socrates. It's not existential philosophy. It's not whatever wisdom that we might look to. What Scripture says is the most, that the highest standard of wisdom, the deepest wisdom, is to know how to find salvation. And the Bible holds out Jesus and His taking our place on the cross. Wrapped up in the word grace. Grace is God's greatest wisdom. Wisdom unto salvation. And so here we see foolish five and a wise five. And the distinguishing factor, the dividing line between the foolish and the wise is their supply of oil. And so we need to think about what does this lamp and this oil represent? I think Scripture is always the best explanation of Scripture. And of course, there, there's still there's wisdom and, and protocols and rules and, and right ways to piece Scripture together. I'm confident about putting these two puzzle pieces together. Jesus himself, earlier in Matthew chapter 5, as a, a prelude to the Beatitudes, he says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp, so there we see it, the imagery of lamp again, and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house, just as these ten virgins were meant to play that important role and to light up the party, especially at night, and to display the beauty and the handsomeness of the bridegroom and their love and the bride together. It's supposed to give light to all the house, to all this wedding feast. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so in Matthew 5, Jesus, he explains the imagery, the metaphor of a lamp 
and the oil burning brightly and cleanly as Christian good works. Now, of course, he's not speaking of how we're saved, but he's speaking of what is becoming, what is right of the Christ follower, of, of a, just the quality and, and characteristics of our life as we know the glory of the Father and the love of the Father through Christ and His grace. So here's his demand. The, the virgins were supposed to play a role, and I'm confident and I want to convince you that today that role is to continue to produce good works to the very end, until the bridegroom returns, until we meet our Maker. Well, next, how do we perpetually overflow good works, especially when we're tired? Because even in the story today, we see that the virgins, they became tired. They became drowsy as it became night, metaphorically speaking. And yet, there were five wise who were ready to produce good works to the very end, and there were five foolish who were not. And so we're to perpetually delay, uh, dwell on Christ's delay as well. Now, at first, that might sound uh, discouraging. But I'm confident of speaking of Christ's delay because in the story, as Jesus tells it himself, he is unashamed. He has no qualms to associate that word of delay with himself in the story. As the bridegroom was delayed. And here we know the bridegroom represents Jesus in his final return. Christ seems delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. And certainly, even the Christian, the Christ follower is human. And as life hits us, we'll go through ebbs and flows of, Lord, this is hard. Lord, I don't want to be a good person today. Lord, I don't want to have the bigger heart in this situation. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to. And, and just whatever it may be, we become drowsy, perhaps even sleeping in our good works. But at midnight, there was a cry. Someone was looking out. And they saw the bridegroom and his entourage approaching. And so they cry out, here is the bridegroom. Wake up. It's time. This is it. It's showtime. Come out to meet him. Fulfill your role. Now, from our perspective, certainly, and, and I, just personal testimony, personal transparency, I've had many moments in my heart-to-heart, -heart, just moments with God in prayer. Lord, where are you? As I look out onto the world, even during the pandemic, where are you? Where are you in all this? You feel delayed. Where are you? I think of the saints of old. Certainly, I'm, I'm sure. I, I can't name one right now, but I'm pretty certain there was someone in the first century, a saint who predicted, who, who overstepped and did, made that ill-advised uh, action of trying to predict when Jesus would return. And I'm sure there was someone who predicted that Jesus would return in the first century, that time uh, came and passed, and they knew they were wrong. Even Martin Luther, one of the giants of the Reformation, he believed that Jesus was returning in 1530. But of course, he was proven wrong, and he uh, just relented. He, he acknowledged that. And I wonder if they could connect with us somehow. They, they could talk to us, and, and they asked 21st century Christians, has Jesus returned yet? In 2021, and we're like, no, he hasn't come back yet. They're like, Really? Even in 2021, he hasn't come back. And so the Christian, the Christ follower, certainly, I think we're allowed to have the sense of delay. Where are you, Christ? But I just learned a beautiful expression a, a few weeks ago. I think we're, we're to understand in this way that the days and nights, they may be long, 
The days and nights may be long, but the years go by fast. And so even the person who is 110 years old, their life is a blink of an eye in the scheme of eternity. I'm going to do something bold here. And to comfort you, if, if you're feeling Christ's delay, if at times you find yourself discouraged, Christ, where are you? I want to comfort you by soft predicting when Christ will return. I know I have your attention now. I'm going to soft predict when Christ will return. I can say confidently that every human being only needs to wait their lifetime until Christ, quote-unquote, returns. It won't be when you, when you pass and you meet your maker. It's not that Christ is returning in some way, but you will meet Christ. And that's why I put return in quotes. Of course, there will be that final, objective, concrete return, the literal return of Christ one day. But every human being, you only need to wait your lifetime. The days and nights may feel long, but the years will go by fast. And even if you're 110 years old, that will only be a blink of an eye in the scheme of eternity. And so we would do well in that whole notion. It's, it's biblical. It's, it's Peter's spirit-inspired words in the second letter. Do not overlook this one fact. He calls it a fact. Beloved church, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. This is not just something poetic. This is fact from God's perspective. And so Jesus, in 2021, he's only been waiting two days so far to return. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, delay, but is patient towards you. Why? Because our Lord, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, and Peter picks up on Jesus' theme that Jesus used in last week's passage, will come like a thief. And when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so you see here, even Peter is picking up on this notion that our works will be brought to account on that final day. So how will we perpetually overflow good works even in what feels like to us a delay, but from God's perspective, the Lord's perspective, it is not. But Jesus loves us so much, I believe he wisely even weaves in that word delay to comfort us, to, to say, I know it's going to feel like I'm delayed, but I'm not. And so how do we stay awake and perpetually overflow good works until he calls us home. Well, we also need to perpetually dwell on Christ and his deservedness then. Our good works aren't meant to be mustered up from our own strength because I think you can probably identify with me when you are just trying to do good in your own strength, you reach your limit. You reach your limit. But when we go back to Christ and rest in his grace, then we find renewed strength to continue on. And it's when we rest and, and just are saturated in and, and just drink upon Christ's deservedness. Now, where do we see this in today's story? Continuing along, just, just moving through this passage sequentially, then all those virgins rose. They woke up and they trimmed their lamps. 
If you don't know how a lamp works, I just learned this this past week too as I was preparing for the message. As you have an oil lamp, there's a reservoir of oil and there's a wick that is uh, submerged in that oil and it goes up and the wick sucks up the oil uh, and as you light the top of the wick, then that burning action continues to suck up the oil. Now, if a wick is frayed, if the wick is, is loose and frayed, then it burns dimly and it produces a smoke. But apparently, that's why they're trimming the lamps. They cut the wick very clean, and that clean wick produces the brightest and cleanest possible flame. And so here we see their, their longing, their excitedness to see the bridegroom. This is where I see Christ's deservedness. They want to give their very best. And so notice, these are all the virgins, the foolish and the wise. They want to give their very best. And to some extent, even the foolish bridesmaids here, they uh, had an appearance of good works. Their lamps were trimmed, but they were lacking something most important. And so in verse 8, the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. They hadn't completely burned out yet, but now they were beginning to fade. And it wasn't just to welcome. Perhaps they might have had enough to welcome the, the, the bridegroom, but they were to be prepared for the entire festivity, for the several weeks. Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. We don't have a reservoir of supply. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And we're to take at least two uh, practical applications here, I think. At first, when I read this, it was actually a little bit uh, um, shocking isn't the best, best word, but I had to reconcile a little bit because it would seem like the Christian thing is to share. And if especially had these, they had, the wise ones had these weak supply of oil, could they not just spare a little bit? But the point here is that we see the wise ones, they knew that they had to give account for themselves to their master, to the bridegroom, and they had to make sure that they had what it took to finish their role, their most important role, to the very end. And so for the fool, where they want to be, to put it in just literal concrete terms, they wanted to be saved on the merit of the wise ones. That was their thinking, but Jesus is trying to show us, no, no, you can't. You can't borrow being brought into, being accepted by the bridegroom into this feast. You can't borrow that. You have to make account for yourself and be prepared yourself. You can't stand before God on the merit of others, your parents, your children, your church, your pastor, your small group leader, your friend. And so we see here, to put it in more biblical language, the fool's good works were dead. They had the appearance of good works, the lamp, the trimmed wick, but they could not produce the required flame when it mattered. At the final call of God for us to meet our maker and make account when Christ returns, when the bridegroom actually comes. And so the New Testament is replete with this, trying to help us understand that it's not enough just to be a good person. Because just being a good person and trying to present your uh, pile of good works before God on that final day, 
it will be counted as dead works. It's not enough to save you. You'll still be imperfect before God. And so Hebrews chapter 9 explains how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So it's speaking of Christ's one singular perfect work that God accepts. And we're to unite our imperfect good works to Christ's perfect work. And so God purifies our conscience from our dead works. We'll come, the Christ follower will come with all our good works and there will still be a pile of imperfection, but God is happy to receive it and say, well done, good and faithful servant, because it's redeemed by being in union, just attached to, associated with, by faith, Christ's perfect work. And so that motivates me to keep trucking along, to keep plodding along, to keep... Picking, being picked up by God's grace and, and, and when I'm tired to rest in Him and to get up and to keep moving forward in Christ. Jesus, in Revelation, He speaks to churches, a church here, and He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are actually dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Keep listening to God's word. Keep dwelling on Christ and who he is and staying in his word and let his grace continue to motivate you to live out a Christ-likeness. That's what repent means. It's not meant to be a, a, a bludgeoning word. It's, it's meant to be a beautiful word that just simply means to keep turning, to be drawn by Christ and keep turning back toward him. Be drawn by his grace. To want to live unto him because he's loved us first. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And Jesus repeats his own theme here. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Michael Green was helpful for me in just his reflections on this passage. And he says, what a warning. It tells us that it is all too possible to be often in church and in Christian company and yet be a stranger to the Holy Spirit. This reminds me that these ten virgins, what it represents for you and me today are people, all people who would consider themselves Christians. Anyone who would call themselves a Christian because all, the whole party wanted to be a part of that wedding feast. They wanted to be welcomed in. And so this is especially a warning, first and foremost, to the church, to anyone who would call themselves Christian. And the distinguishing marker of the genuine Christian, the wise Christian, and the foolish one is continually overflowing good works produced by grace. Not to earn our salvation. And in fact, that's what the foolish ones in this story is. Well, they're trying to do. They go off and try to buy their entrance because they weren't prepared. And so even that imagery is, is a picture of just a just a very uh, savvy picture, play on words by Jesus that they're trying to, through their moral performance, to buy their entrance. But it was too late. And so I agree with Michael Green. What a warning. We need the Holy Spirit to be applying God's grace and continue to produce good works. It is possible to have a lamp that looks good 
but has no oil in it. And Michael Green continues to reflect, there are some things you cannot borrow. You need to possess them for yourself. It, is simply, it simply is not possible to rely on anyone else for them. Holiness is one of those things. Nobody else can help you or stand in for you. The foolish were begging the wise, please let me somehow borrow from you so that I can enter into this party as well. Now, I agree and disagree with Michael Green here. I agree that I can't save my kids. My kids, when they stand before Christ one day, can't say, well, my dad was a pastor. I can't say for you, well, they came to Trinity Grace Church. They tithed. They, they served. They did their best to love. No, you have to make your decision by faith to receive God's grace. I agree with Michael Green there, but where I disagree is there is one person who can and wants to and will stand in for you. Jesus Christ. He's the one person that we can borrow from and we're meant to borrow from. Finally, let us perpetually dwell on Christ's deadline. This is a hard fact of Christianity, that there is a deadline of the gospel. Even though it's good news, it comes with a deadline. And so Jesus continues to tell the story. And while they were going to buy, there it is. They're, they're, they're trying to purchase their own entrance. They're going to buy. The bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. And so there it is, a clear deadline. And afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord. This is a very sad picture. They're, they're calling out, Lord, Lord. They're saying the right things. But Jesus answers, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And so we're to take this as a somber warning as a Christ follower. Am I living out the fullness of the Christian life? It doesn't mean you're perfect. What it means is that you continually abide in Christ, dwell on him, our need of his grace, and step by step, little bit by little bit every day, though you might go two steps forward, ten steps back, that you continue to turn to Christ and just draw on his grace and praying, Lord, help me to continue to grow and mature into your likeness and, and obeying your commands and hoping in your promises and loving you and loving others as you would have me. I'm going to keep just plodding along in that. And so we need to find ourselves on the right side of that door. And Jesus, I believe, makes it clear. How do we prepare for Christ's return? That by God's grace, we make effort to continue to produce good works. And so Jesus wraps his story up and says, if there's a moral to this story... In Jesus' words, it would be this, watch therefore. And that word watch means be vigilant. Be vigilant. And what does vigilant mean? It means to keep careful watch for possible danger or difficulties, to, to not fall asleep. And even though in the story, I think Jesus is comforting his church as well to say, I get it. Life is going to get hard. It's going to metaphorically become the night of your life and you, you'll fall asleep. You'll become drowsy like even the wise ones did in the story. But as you continue to 
Just draw upon His grace. And at the right moment to wake up and to continue to produce those fruit of good works. Now, let me end it this way. Here I have a bottle of uh, Advil PM. The, the label is ripped off. And they don't even sell these in Canada. I, I picked this up in the U.S. at some point, And it's basically a sleeping pill <laughs> over the counter. Uh, and uh, the first time I used these was on my trip home from Malawi after some work with Love a Village. Uh, and I can't remember how long the flight was, but something long from Africa to Toronto, uh, probably like 13 hours or something like that. And I was exhausted. And I thought, okay, I'm going to pop some of these in. Of course, I just followed the prescription. But even the prescribed amount, I, I, could, I was shocked by how powerful it is. And 13 hours just out. I came in and out of consciousness. And when I would, my eyes would just sludgingly open, I could feel my whole body feeling like just a sack of bricks. And, and this thing just knocked me out, knocked me out that whole trip. Now, I use that as an analogy because as we live in this culture, and if, if, we, if we're just taking in the culture and living according to the culture without being vigilant, we can be spiritually knocked out in a similar manner. And so I love the hymn that we sang at the 930 service, Blessed Assurance, uh, the last stanza, Perfect Submission. All is at rest. Perfect, just dwelling on Christ. Delighting in Him. Resting in His grace. I in my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting. Looking above. Filled with His goodness. Lost in His love. Lord, give me grace to perpetually overflow good works until You call me home.